0: Welcome to Friday, and welcome to KUAW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I assume you're busy. You've had other things to do besides uh, cover the news. You're not paid to be a journalist, uh, but some people are. And so what I thought I would do would be to bring three... Excellent local journalists together again this week, and help you understand, give you some insight, answer some questions about what happened this week and what it all means. So, please, along with me, welcome multimedia journalist Joanne Silburner, a veteran health and health policy reporter for, gosh, since the '80s, I think, Joanne. Yeah, welcome to the show. I mean, thanks for coming back. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Seattle Channel's host and producer Brian Callan and Brian, it's always good to see you again too. Thanks for coming.
1: You bet. Thanks.
0: My colleague, my friend KUOW's uh, Politics politics reporter, David Hyde. David, it's great to have you on. Thanks for doing the show. Thanks, Bill. So uh, I can see my friends here because uh, we're live streaming the thing. So you can watch us too if you want. Go to YouTube or Facebook and you just search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, our top story this week, of course. What does the U.S. Supreme Court's possible take on abortion have to do with Washington state? We found out this week a majority of court justices seem to support overturning Roe v. Wade, turning abortion rights back to individual states. Well, our state already legally protects abortion rights, as Governor Inslee reminded us.
1: Washington state was a pro-choice state. Washington state
0: is a pro-choice state. And we're going to fight... We are going to fight like hell to keep Washington a pro-choice state. But does anyone have to fight like hell to keep Washington a pro-choice state? I mean, here's our state attorney general, Bob Ferguson. Washingtonians' fundamental right to access safe and legal abortion is not in jeopardy from this opinion. Okay, so, Joanne Silberner, is there a hellacious fight happening in Washington state now based on this Supreme Court leak?
2: Well, if history's a guide, no. Uh, Washington state legalized abortion three years before Roe v. Wade. Uh, the, The opposition did get a caveat in there that the woman had to tell her husband, and I'm not sure how followed up that was, but it was legal here before Roe v. Wade. And I haven't done any head counting in the legislature, but I had just haven't heard anything about any kind of pushback on that level. I think what we're going to see in Washington state is a lot of people from Idaho.
0: Yes, that's right. Um we we have this uh, neighboring state that has a so-called trigger law that uh, you know, it's in place. It's just waiting for the okay from the Supreme Court to uh, to outlaw abortions and uh, this is the state house speaker of Washington, Lori Jenkins, reminding us that, as you say, many people will be coming here. And we, as we have been for so long in this state, will be a beacon of light and of help and of hope and of action for the the women of this country. Does anyone here have a sense of scale, how many people we expect to come, and then how that would affect Washington state clinics, the crowding, the the, the funding, (laughs) the access?
2: Yeah, I have an idea from the uh, the Guttmacher Institute. I'm looking at my notes here because I wrote this down. In 2019, 5% of the abortions done in Washington state were from people who came from out of state. It was about 865 people. And Guttmacher Institute, which does a lot of research on uh, abortion issues and women's health issues, they're projecting a 385% Increase that's nearly a quadrupling. I don't know where that number comes, but if they're right, if it's nearly a quadrupling, that's you know, maybe what's 385 times I'm sorry, what's uh 865 times four, maybe 3000 or more. Mm -hmm. I've got my numbers right,
1: and I think it's just a situation where we're talking about Idaho, possibly Montana coming across that skinny panhandle there. I mean, we're talking about a number of different states that could be coming our way just looking at a map of where abortion is legal in the states that are that uh, that have that on the books right now and then looking at the 26 states that either have this trigger law in place or have a ban in place already i think this is something that is going to push more of that type of traffic our way in the state of Washington it'll be interesting to see how that pans out but those numbers could be big and i think that's something that Washington has definitely thought about and just in terms of how big of a, an issue this is, we're certainly seeing it on the national level, the fighting back and forth, but really above all, and I don't know what you think about this, David, but it just seems like this is one of those issues where in terms of letting this being des- letting this be decided by the states, if indeed that's what happens here with the Supreme Court, I think it's a situation where the status quo politically is just going to be even more firmly entrenched. that That's what comes across to me.
3: Yeah, and that state politics really matter. There are only mm-hmm. 14 states where Democrats are in complete control like Washington and Oregon um, as you say you know Idaho is going to be a big issue for us and it's interesting you know Bob Ferguson saying that he'll challenge laws from other states that try to punish people trying to cross the border into Washington so again you know I talked to all kinds of people who care about all kinds of issues including this one they said but I don't care about politics well guess what state politics matters that's that's one of the lessons again this week
2: do you, clear do, do you think there's going to be any pushback within the legislature?
1: it just doesn't, I I will say there are about 24, 25 some odd positions that are open positions at the state legislature right now. So we'll see what develops over the next couple of months. But like you, Joanne, I haven't seen a lot of activity there. I mean, this has not been one of those uh, campaign issues that has really come up. And if you're looking at a statewide race, I think it would be a bad idea for somebody to try to bring this up uh, in our region. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, but I'm not seeing a lot of activity on that. I guess we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of months if some of these candidates who are vying for these jobs try to ride the coattails of what's happening here. But this is clearly not a popular decision, potential decision, I should say, in the state of Washington.
3: It does seem like uh, it's going to be an issue in the eighth congressional district, Mm. um, which is a federal race, not a state or local race, where Democrat Kim Schreier, you know, uh, could be in real trouble this year. Cook Political Report has been calling that one a toss up, Um, you know. Her folks are reminding people that she's the only female doctor in Congress who supports abortion rights. Uh, she voted for a federal law that would um, uh, support making uh, abortion legal on the federal level. Um, and so I think in that race, her Republican opponents face a little bit of a tricky uh <laughs> political uh Mm -hmm. needle to try and thread here on the one hand you know not wanting to alienate their base and on the other hand worrying about if they get through the general election what's going to happen to them if they come out too strongly uh, against abortion rights and i did actually this week reach out to king county council member reagan dunn um, who's a pretty formidable opponent potentially for schreier Um, he was the only one actually who responded to me of the three sort of well-funded candidates i i spoke with tried to speak with Um, you know, and he's sort of mouthing this, well, we need a full investigation of the Supreme Court leak, mm. but nothing on the abortion rights issue itself. And I think that speaks to the fact that uh, it's kind of a tough, tough issue for them.
1: And I just think that that searching after the leak is very much the the red herring. And uh, just, you know what I mean, in terms of yeah. actually getting to the root of what's going on here, Joanne, did you sense that too?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's McConnell, evidently, and that's all he's been talking about. And you're thinking, this should be, count as a victory to him. And he's not going that route. I can't quite figure that one out.
0: Is there any political price, David, to be paid, do you think? I mean, by Reagan done, how long can he, this is, I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating this as a journalist. I feel like this is this is what everyone is passionately caring about right now. How does he just say nothing about where he stands on this issue and for how long?
3: Yeah, I think he'll he'll get asked, and and we'll see we'll see what he says. Um, I actually went out and spoke to voters in the eighth yesterday about this, and one of them said to me, you know, I'd really like to know where he stands. But this was a guy who obviously doesn't really like Reagan done in the first place. Yeah. And um, as a matter of fact, I was trying to find out. It was a kind of a difficult thing, I think, at this stage to ask. But both what people thought about the ruling, but also would this affect their vote? And nobody told me that it would actually change their vote. Mm-hmm. Um, small sample size, right? I was standing outside the Issaquah Public Library. Um, But still, I think think it maybe shows, you know, just how hyper-partisan things are, that this isn't the 90s. I mean, I was thinking about um, the whole soccer mom thing back in the 90s, right? The soccer mom was the big suburban swing vote. And I think Democrats are hoping maybe that that's a possibility here. But they also know that these days, soccer moms pretty much vote for the Democrats already anyway. Um, so I did speak to one kind of democratic party operative who told me that, you know, it could really energize turnout for them. That's one of the things that they're kind of hoping happens, but it's like, it's a long way till November. And the other thing to keep in mind is the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and how that affected polling. Democrats were hopeful that it would help them and, and it didn't, you know, it kind of went the opposite direction in a weird way. So mm. who knows what's going to happen, right? Yeah.
2: Well, speaking of the Kavanaugh hearings, I can't wait to see what happens. And this is the other end of the country from Washington. But Susan Collins basically staked her political career on Kavanaugh going with, uh, you know, what the Supreme Court has said in previous years.
1: Precedent. Yep.
0: Yeah. Just to explain that, this is the, the dance we do when Supreme Court nominees, they come up to, for their hearings And they pretend that uh, they don't have any opinions and they and if something's controversial, they say, well, it's decided it's decided law. But does anybody believe that Susan Collins believed that? I mean, uh, I guess I'm not in her head, but um, it just seems like exposing. You know, I read something. This reminds me. I read that uh, um, most people who voted for Barack Obama and then switched parties to vote for Trump said say told surveyors that they favor abortion rights there's this not to mention people who just stayed home you know who who could have voted for clinton and didn't and you know people can do what they want and think what they want but there seems like a, a kind of a disconnect uh between how the people stated priorities and then how they behave how they actually vote
1: yeah, abortion is one of those kind of issues. I, I think it uh, it transcends political boundaries for sure. I think a lot of that uh, discussion, as Governor Inslee said, and as Joanne brought up earlier, I mean, Washington is a state that uh, made a decision on this before Roe v. Wade. So there's a history, at least in our state with this. And interesting to see how it'll play out politically in our state, but uh, the national frame is just gonna be a little crazy over the next couple of weeks.
0: Well, speaking of that, uh, the, the Democrats are bringing this up to a vote Um, In the U.S. Senate, I'm pretty sure in the in the next few days, um, next week. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is this is a a codifying Roe versus Wade, as they say, making it national law, protecting abortion rights. It passed the House. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to pass the Senate. Right. So what's, you know, then you have people calling for the filibuster to end, but warning, that's a double-edged sword. Does anyone, uh, you know, we're here locally, but we're affected by everything that goes on in Congress. Do you, what should our listeners understand about that debate?
2: I think that Schumer, uh, the head of the, the the Democratic head of the Senate, is uh, just getting, wanting to get people to talk about it, to get it on the plate, to make it look like they're doing something. But the fact is... It's not going to do anything. It's not going to go. They've got a couple of Democrats in there who aren't going to go along in the first place. So even if without the filibuster, they probably unless a couple of Republicans came over, they weren't going to get anything through yeah. anyway. Yeah. And Thank-
1: locally, just one quick note on this one. I did want to bring up that the Reproductive Privacy Act in Washington state, which actually did codify Roe v. Wade, went into effect in 91. I'm just throwing it out there for context. David, what do you got?
3: Oh, just, you know, uh, as you suggested earlier, most Americans, according to polls, don't support overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh, most Americans support abortion in some form. So this isn't a winning issue for Republicans nationally. Democrats know that they want to get uh, Republicans on the record, you know, voting down this bill because they know that that could help them in, in, in some districts. And, you know, even here in Washington state, Patty Murray uh, is facing re-election, and you'd think it would be a cakewalk. But given some of the polling and everything else, I'm told that you know Democrats aren't so sure. They're a little bit worried about even that race, and so um, hmm. I don't know how worried, but you know, a little worried. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so I think um, you know, and 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 in that race, there's clear differences between the t- the two candidates on the on the abortion issue.
0: One more note from Congress: This is Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal saying the. In this leaked opinion, the logic there of overturning Roe versus Wade could be applied beyond abortion.
2: There is a straight line from upending abortion rights to getting rid of access to contraception, to banning gay marriage. And our low income communities, our black and brown communities, our LGBTQ communities will be the ones who pay the
0: steepest price. So this leaked opinion says there's no right to privacy implied in the U.S. Constitution that protects abortion rights. So how likely is it that the court uses that same logic to let states regulate contraception, same-sex marriage, et cetera? And then would that have any effect in Washington State, or are we so blue that it's going to be the same, the same?
2: Well, I, I read through the the. Um, what Alito had written, and I, I vaguely recall seeing something about him saying this doesn't extend beyond. Yes, but this was a February tenth memo. There's a lot in there that a, a lot of sort of ad hominem critic, you know, real critical remarks about previous justices. That's just out of the ordinary. I, I think it, the whole thing is going to be toned down and. My guess is that in, in you know as as, they, as he rewrites this memo in order to get everybody to sign it or rewrites this opinion, we're going to lose some of that sense. I, I don't know whether we'll lose the privacy sense, but I did talk to a couple of lawyers yesterday who were appalled by the decision, but aren't aren't sure that it'll be able to be applied to other things. So should we worry? Well, as you mentioned in Washington State, probably not because again, this is a state. By state decision. Should people in Idaho or other places worry? (sighs) You know, I've given up predicting. Mm -hmm. This whole thing has gone so crazy. And, you know, only Margaret Atwood, the novelist, Mm -hmm. really foresaw this. All the journalists didn't. You know, 10 years ago, if you had said, how far could this go? um, I don't know that anybody would have said it'd gone this far. So were the lawyers who I talked to yesterday right and saying, well, probably not. It would certainly be a fight. You know, how reassured am I by that? Not really. Not really reassured.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's pause there. That's Joanne Silberner, uh, health health and health policy reporter. And we've got Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan and KUOW Politics reporter David Hyde here on Week in Review here on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke. You can join us visually on YouTube or Facebook if you want to watch the show. Search KUOW Public Radio. I want to give an update here on our pandemic because uh, Snohomish County health officials are asking residents, not requiring them to put their masks back on with official cases up 130% there this week. Hospitalization rates were 25 people a week a month ago. Now it's about 50 patients a week. There was one death this week in Snohomish County from COVID officially. In King County, cases are up 18% in a week. Hospitalizations fell, though, to 11 patients per day and deaths are about one per day. So, Joanne, we can't predict the pandemic. You're a healthcare reporter, not a psychic, but is there anything you think we can expect? What should we know?
2: Oh boy. I'd rather talk about what we don't know, but think we know. Like numbers that you just gave, the number of hospitalizations and deaths to use that as a comparative figure. Isn't great because remember with vaccination, we get fewer hospitalizations and we get fewer deaths. So the idea that deaths aren't what they were last year or during the Omicron surge, what does that mean in terms of actual incidents? Jeff Duchin was on KUOW yesterday at this time on Soundside. Mm-hmm. It was definitely an interview worth listening to. I wrote down. He talked about significant uncertainty. Uh, what had you know? He just kept saying uncertainty over and over and over. So I'm with him on this. It's it's a it's really uncertain times. It's not over. It's uh, where is it? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: And just trying to track the numbers, I think, is one of the most difficult things, because testing is not what it used to be, right? I don't think as many people are getting tested, or if they do, there's a lot more of a prevalence of at-home testing, which doesn't always get reported, which is a big factor here. So looking at these numbers, we don't have a super clear picture. I am interested, though, to see what happens with these vaccinations for kids who are younger, like four and younger. I know the FDA is just about to approve those. A lot of parents are thinking about that see how that might impact things here to bring us closer to that 70% mark that the U.S. has been trying to reach for two plus years now, right? So we'll see what happens there. I I do have a caveat on that, though. I think we've seen at least with the child immunizations between five and 11 for COVID, those have not been strong, definitely very weak in some different states around the U.S. So a lot of things to consider there, but definitely looking at that possibility of vaccinating more kids to bring us back up to a, a level where you have more people vaccinated and protected against the virus.
0: Indeed. Yeah, I'm boosting my uh, my twins this weekend. They're finally eligible for a booster. Um, let's talk about masks. The state's mask mandate is mostly gone. You still have to wear masks in healthcare care and long term care, jails and prisons. Uh, but this week, a legal challenge to the mandate went on uh, before the state's uh, court of appeals now. The conservative Freedom Foundation attorney Shella Alcabez compared refusing to wear a mask to other forms of First Amendment protected conduct. Nude dancing is considered expressive conduct. And if that's an example of expressive conduct here in Washington, I think certainly refusing to wear a mask in this context is. Like nude dancing. But attorney Emma Grunberg, representing the state, countered that not wearing a mask is more like refusing to wear a seatbelt. That is a
2: public safety law of universal application. And there was a huge amount of political controversy um, when that law was first enacted. But the existence of political controversy does not turn violation of that law into protected speech.
0: I I ask you all, how much does this mask mandate case matter anymore?
2: I'm going to pop right in here and say that the idea that New dancing could be compared to masking. New dancing doesn't endanger me, doesn't endanger children, it doesn't endanger immunocompromised people, it doesn't endanger any. Well, yeah, I suppose you could come up with some way it does, but.
1: I'm going to put my shirt back on for this conversation. <laughs> yeah, keep going, <laughs> please. Yeah.
2: You know, it, it, being able to uh, control infectious diseases is so basic to. Public health and public health law and it's being threatened now, both statewide and nationally. And that that really scares me for the next one, because there's going to be more pandemics as we get more and more into uh, people moving into wilderness areas, more and more transportation around. We're going to have more of these things. And we're basically telling the public health community, "Ah, uh, you can't do anything.
1: Put your weapons away. This reminds me so much of the conversation going on at the national level with the Department of Justice challenging uh, some of the different decisions that were made specific in the courts to say, you don't have to wear your mask at the airport or whatever else, right? Remember that from a couple of weeks ago, which really started this whole string of people saying, you don't need to wear a mask or different agencies saying, you don't need to wear a mask. But I think what what's happening here in our state and at the federal level too, is just this attempt to go down this path that Joanne is saying to say, okay, these different public health entities that we have in place, they're legitimate. They can make these decisions here these decisions are are things that are going to protect us. So rather than see this as some sort of civil rights issue, I think the hope with these different legal cases is to establish the importance of these different public health agencies and the work that they're doing so that people think they are legitimate and listen to them, because that's a key piece to this. Now, do different agencies like the CDC, have they been doing the right thing the whole way along? Has their message been clear? Absolutely not. But I think that that basic structure of do these public health agencies have some sort of uh, have an importance in in our lives in terms of protecting us? I, I think that's what's at stake here.
3: I'm I'm really interested in that, Joanne, and just um, I mean, do you really think we could we could face that future where people aren't be aren't able to mask for this particular pandemic? You know, I talked to a friend of mine who studies infectious diseases and said, you know, what do you think about? masking at this point or policies changing and, and he's like look we're at it's over whether it's over it or not for this one but you raised the the specter of something that's really concerning how, how likely do you think it is that that public agencies won't be able to act
2: well e- even if they could i think they're so cowed now by the reaction i mean people have been getting public health people in various parts of the country have been getting Threats. You know, their their houses have been picketed. Their children have been followed to school. It's amazing what's happened to people who have jobs that are meant to assure the public good or or you know try and keep the public healthy. Uh, I think that there are going to be laws against allowing them the power to mandate masks, and I think that uh, I can't count on. Nate, well, my my neighbors are all wonderful, but I can't go <laughs> on the broader sense of it. I'm not sure I, we can count on our neighbors to do the right thing. And without and without public health people either being willing or able to tell us to mask. You know, if, if you go to parts of Asia, people mask routinely there, you know, even when there's not a particular pandemic. And it's just the accepted social norm. It's a, become a political statement here that has really made the job of public health workers impossible, quite frankly.
0: Between state-by-state state mask mandates and possibly state-by-state state abortion rights, I, I regularly wonder whether people, whether the big sort is just going to increase when people are are going to, um, <laughs> right, become, we're, we're going to become bluer and blue and other states redder and redder. By the yeah. way, I should acknowledge- You don't have to move to Canada. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to stay in Washington state. That's that's the that's the I'm going to Canada. Um so I, I want to acknowledge that, uh, which and you can you can see this if you're on YouTube or, or Facebook with us, that uh, it looks like the three of you might be at home. I'm in a I'm I'm in a shared workspace. I'm in a studio that I'm going to leave soon. I'm not wearing a mask, um, which I could. I could have it up in front of my face. You know, even though we're, we're putting the show visually on, we're all making decisions like this. I did get an email from a listener. Uh, who who wants to stay anonymous, who very politely told me that she finds our conversations on this show about masking to be, quote, very judgy. There are lots of Mm -hmm. reasons why people choose not to mask. Many masking decisions are actually being thoughtfully made. It's not just because we're tired of wearing masks. She goes on to say she's a public elementary school speech language pathologist and says, due to masks, most of my speech students have not progressed much over the past two years. Almost as soon as I could, I took my mask off at school. and I questioned her a little bit, and she also talked about, you know, the smell of it and the fogged up glasses and all the stuff I relate to. But uh, it's sort of a fine line when you talk about, you know, the, the word judgy is kind of an interesting <laughs> one, right? Like, when, when do you... when and I, I ask all of you for private experiences too we're sort of talking as as colleagues and 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 just fellow humans and so um i don't know i don't know about that line between uh finger wagging and uh and just op- opining giving your, your well
2: opinion I, I, I think about the word public in there yeah. and i think about there's masking there's also things like you know uh, issues of ventilation you know if she's in A schoolroom situation with kids who are less likely, kids have always been a little bit less likely to get sick and presumably to be infectious. And she's in a very well-ventilated room. I'm comfortable from a public health standpoint. And I wouldn't judge her for not wearing a mask in that situation. But if you put her into a a movie theater or a concert where it's not well indoors, not well-ventilated, sitting two feet or one foot from somebody who's talking loudly, you know, I, I'm alone in my office right now. Uh, but if I were talking loudly in front of other people within six feet of me, I would, I'd have a mask on and I'd hope that they did too. Yeah,
1: And I think that the piece brought up here is just, public health encompasses more than just how diseases are transmitted, right? I just think about the education system, what it's gone through, what kids have gone through over the past couple of years here. This has not been healthy for them in so many different ways. And I think the effects of that are going to be longstanding. And I I definitely sympathize with that teacher there. And as a parent myself, went back and forth with this. I was testing my kids constantly. We've talked a lot about what we do with masks, what we don't do with masks, how we deal with this within our own family. It's, it's a lot. And so I, I, I try not to come across as judgmental on this. It's it's difficult to say when you're talking about public health emergencies like this for people not to think that it's judgmental. But I hope the idea is to try to protect as many people as we can. Part of that protection means you know, making sure kids are getting educated. And that did not happen over the past couple of years mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a good way. I think a, a lot of teachers would tell you.
3: I'm totally judgy. Yeah, Right. <laughs> I got no problem being judgy. I was on an airplane with a guy who was taking his mask off because we were having to have an emergency landing and they were literally resuscitating somebody a few seats up. And this guy saw this as an opportunity to take his mask off. So I tweet I tweet, messaged uh, Alaska Airlines and said, this is happening on our plane. And they, and the stewardesses shortly thereafter came and spoke to him and he put his mask back on. <laughs> and wow. I, I totally judge him. However, I don't judge public school teachers. I think we handled this uh, pandemic pretty poorly when it came to keeping schools open for kids. And I hope we learn some lessons for next time because I do think, a lot of kids really suffered from this and and we're going to see that the, the, the repercussions of that for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, last note, I, I went to the Sanders game, 70,000 people or whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> um, super spreader event. Yeah. And, uh, when I went inside, I decided, you know, I'm just going to wear my mask for the most part when I'm indoors and, and, uh, You know, it would be better if everybody was, I think, still wearing those masks indoors at events like that. I'm not sure why we want to spread the virus even now, (laughs) it seems to me. But whatever, that's where we are. So I'm not judgy in that context. I mean, this we've moved on, as my friend said. Uh, we're over it, whether we're over it or not.
0: Right. That's where we are. Uh, on Weekend Review, we need to pause here on KUOW. As we're uh, wrapping up the news of the week, what happened, what it means with David Hyde there and Brian Callanan and Joe Ansel and I'm Bill Radke. We take a quick breakdown. Be right back with more news. KUOW's Week in Review is with KUOW's politics reporter, David Hyde, and health reporter, Joanne Silburner, health care, health policy, and Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan. Brian, the Seattle City Council is considering increasing the pay and the working conditions for app-based delivery drivers, like people who drive for Uber Eats, DoorDash, Instacart. At a public hearing, Michelle Balzer, who delivers groceries for Instacart, said drivers bear the cost for gas, the wear and tear on their car.
3: Not only do we carry the burden of expenses, uh, we also really don't have a say in our work. I know that they keep staying flexible, but we don't get to determine what orders we see. And we are pitted against each other.
0: A city council proposal would require these app-based companies to pay for expenses and set minimum pay standards. An Uber executive, Allison Ford, says Uber is good with an earnings standard, but they worry about the bill's unintended consequences.
1: Among our many concerns are the overall high cost of the earnings standard formula and lack of research to truly measure what impact this will have on the community and the economy.
0: Brian, where are we? Is this gonna pass the city council? Anybody opposing it and why?
1: There are a few people opposing it on the council and by opposing it, I mean to say they're trying to add some amendments to it. Mm. Uh, Sarah Nelson, citywide council member is trying to push a few different things here. She's really been battling with council member Lisa Herbold who's been one of the prime sponsors on this. Herbold and council member Andrew Lewis co-sponsoring this measure going forward. It's difficult to say where we are right now because I think there's been a lot of work that's gone in on this, more than a year's worth of hearings and whatever else involving people like DoorDash, the executives there, involving people like TaskRabbit. These are some of the different uh, groups out there. So it's not just drivers. I want to make sure I put that in perspective. There's also these different marketplace apps, as they call them, TaskRabbit, Rover, someone to help walk your dog, things of that nature. So they're trying to put together something that's very different here. This is really what would be the first city in the U.S., ever to pass some legislation like this to guarantee this type of minimum wage to these app-based workers. And you heard the feedback from the app-based worker there and what's happening with the uh, different companies there. And I think we're hearing a lot of the same arguments that we heard when Seattle passed its minimum wage for all workers in 2014, this idea This will get costs going to the customer. There's going to be less demand, less work for gig workers. But supporters of this are really talking about these gig workers being in a crisis situation. If they don't take every gig, even those cheap ones that don't get a minimum wage, they get shut out from the apps they're working for, and it turns into this race for the bottom. So... A big public hearing. You heard a few clips from it yesterday there on the Seattle City Council. A lot of amendments flying around City Hall right now after this process that taken about a year to uh, unfold, I should say. I know you've got some council members and some people in the business uh, area, arena, I should say, pushing for a delay to this legislation, talking about those unintended consequences. But I am really seeing the council trying to push forward with this, if not next week, then definitely later this month. So something to keep an eye on there for sure.
0: A trendsetter nationwide? You say we'd be the first.
1: Yeah, th- this would be a big deal. New York has worked on this, but this is something, the way it's been codified, at least for the city of Seattle, or the way it could be codified for the city of Seattle, they're working on something where you, you they, these workers would actually get... Uh, The minimum wage plus their expenses there, they'd have some more transparency in terms of how much they would get paid per gig. That's a big piece of it that's not really on the table right now for them. And they would still be allowed that flexibility, meaning they could actually reject these different jobs without some of the uh, punitive measures that they turn into when they actually do that. So uh, they're trying to put together something here that's very broad. It's the first time it's happened. That's why we see so many questions about this, but uh, this is an important part for workers out there. And I know a lot of companies are keeping a close eye on this one too.
2: You know, something that really mystifies me was a story that was in the New York Times the other day about Uber and Instacart and a lot of these other things. And it says they're not making money. Mm. Uber evidently last year uh, uh, took in less than it spent. And what I can't Uber, figure Joanne, out is Uber
0: overall or just Uber Eats, or do you know?
2: Uh, just an Uber.
1: Okay. Yeah. The, so the I, I delivery guys, Uber Eats, was, delivery was, guys was, are apparently making a little money, but, but keep going. Go on.
2: But we're, we're already, we're already paying not enough for these services if people aren't getting what they need to survive. So there where, where is the money? I mean, are we going to, we're going to have to pay, we're going to have to pay true value if, we're going to pay these people correctly. And I think we're going to have to adjust to that world. But if they're already not making money when the, when their work, if the companies aren't making money, when their workers are not making money, how, how are the economics of this going to work out? I mean, maybe this is just a failed system of expecting to get, you know, very inexpensive rides to places, expecting people to do your grocery shopping for you. You know, we think we're, we're certainly going to have to pay more money. I don't which know about-
1: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, we fi- should. I, no, I, I hear you loud and clear. I, I think what it, we're seeing on this is just the rise of the gig economy. So many people are doing this work now in Seattle. And I'll put Uber and Lyft drivers over on the side here. 2019, The Seattle City Council passed a measure so that those drivers in particular, those transportation network companies, they passed a measure so they could actually get minimum wage here. This is about the other folks, the other apps that are out there that would be covered by this legislation here. But there are something like 40,000 people that are doing this work in the Seattle area right now, these app-based companies. And they work for multiple apps, which makes the uh, dollars and cents and the statistics on this a little confusing. But... When you have that many people trying to involve uh, get involved with this, it does involve a lot of conversation, or excuse me, competition between these different workers here, and that can drive prices down. There's there's no way around that.
3: Yeah. And and Joanna, it, it will raise prices, as I understand it, right, Brian? By yeah. DoorDash is claiming five bucks per delivery, mm-hmm. so you will you will be paying more. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and Brian, I had a question about how much it would raise the minimum. It seems like there's competing numbers from mm proponents and opponents on that um somebody uh, told me that the opponents of this are claiming it would raise their their minimum to $33 an hour which seems like an overestimate but do anything about like what what would the actual final minimum wage be for for folks who are doing this this tough work and who have you know had a, have been on the front lines during the pandemic
1: right De- devil is definitely in the details there and all these amendments that i'm talking about right now are trying to figure out that system or that actual uh, logarithm, if you will, that'll get get us to that number. But I will say that the city council is basically saying anytime a gig is accepted for DoorDash, let's say there will be a five dollar charge right off the top with that, just so it doesn't turn into a deal where, hey, I'm going to take this call. You start driving there. You're two miles away from the restaurant. Oh, and I canceled. Right. Because that ends up being a big waste of time for the driver or whatever else. So they're trying to offer some protections in that way. Um, I I can't tell you exactly what that number is going to land on there. I do know that the minimum wage in Seattle right now for large employers is $17.27. So they're trying to get close to that uh, because the situation right now is there are a number of workers, as it's been reported, that are getting way less than that, less than double digits, and they're feeling forced to take these really cheap type of gigs where they have to drive a long way, take some uh, not a large amount of food, maybe not get that much of a tip, and, and they're losing out on it.
0: Yeah, Joanne raises an interesting question there. The idea that we um, we want everything, we want a we want a minimum Mm -hmm. wage, and we want convenience, and we want things now, and (laughs) and those kind of services might actually be for elite the elite. Uh, w- 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 and that may be the way it, end- it ends up. Um, well, I need to to move on uh, here on Week in Review. We have so much more to cover. I just wanted to, to end this segment before we take a break on On one more business note, which is that Boeing, by the way, full disclosure, that's where my wife works, Boeing is moving its corporate headquarters away not back not back home to seattle but from chicago to the pentagon to arlington virginia and so i wonder you know i've been here a long time i sure remember the move 20 years ago sudden a move to chicago i wonder does this do you think this matters to seattle if so why or does it, is it is this history to most people I, to you I,
1: they were far away and they're moving farther yeah. I, I i don't see how that really helps it's just this whole idea of kind of separation between your management folks and the people are actually doing the work. I think you've heard a lot of critics saying that in our area here, and it only further solidifies that that, that piece of it. And so this idea that they need to be closer to the Pentagon, to DC, to all these lawmakers to make sure they're lobbying for the right changes, part of that makes sense a little bit. But I think the real work that they need to do is trying to get back to basics and making sure they're doing the right inspections, et cetera, on, on planes like the 737. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed with Boeing. I don't know if moving their headquarters is the answer.
2: It seems yeah, I like. Oh, i sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, Dominic Gates had a great piece in the Seattle Times about it, calling the initial move a, a total flop. They they only went to Chicago because there's a macho steakhouse culture there, and there was no real reason. And Brian, the reasons that you gave for them to be here, but you know, morale I think is fairly low hmm. now at Boeing. And uh, Bill, you might not know more about that from your wife, but the um, the idea that they're moving away from their commercial, you know, their commercial work is, is here, commercial airlines to be near the people who are doing it. I think that would really help, help the company. And I don't think they care.
3: Yeah. I mean, um, I was just going to say, yeah, absolutely. They're moving there because there is a swamp uh, and they want to be closer to it Mm -hmm. so that they can (laughs) win more lucrative government contracts. Apparently Trump, you know, didn't manage to solve it, even though he talked about it, but I will remind you that Washington Mutual learned a hard lesson of not living uh, or, excuse me, uh, having its corporate headquarters in Mm -hmm. (laughs) D.C. And uh, by the time they figured it out, it was too late. So, yeah, you can also understand why they want to be uh, close to the swamp.
0: Yeah. If you can't drain them, join them. That's uh, David Hyde. We've got Brian Kellen on here and uh, Joe Ansel burner. And we're going to continue a week in review here after we take a quick break. Come right back. On KUOW's Week in Review, by the way, streaming on YouTube and Facebook, you just search KUOW Public Radio there. I'm Bill Radke, and you are with health policy reporter Joanne Silberner and KUOW politics reporter David Hyde and Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. And this week, drug reform advocates unveiled a proposed state, Washington state voter initiative to decriminalize all drugs. Supporters say this is supposed to help people with substance use disorders, including Carmen Pacheco-Jones, founder of the Health and Justice Recovery Alliance.
3: The old system of arrest, criminalization, jail, release, relapse, um, fail. Um, We see the continued cycles of recidivism, not only harming our individuals that are impacted, but also our communities. And we need comprehensive, positive change.
0: Politics reporter David Hyde, we've been talking all hour about how blue Washington state is, but uh, you were telling me politically this decriminalized drugs initiative is not necessarily a slam dunk.
3: It's complicated, I think. Uh, I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but um, you know, on the, 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 as you hear backers saying, why would we want to punish people who have drug addiction issues by locking them up? Um, and as I understand it, the measure would have over hundred million dollars basically to help folks with substance abuse treatment and drug prevention and that sort of thing. There's a huge equity argument here. We know that BIPOC communities, marginalized communities are the most affected by the war on drugs. I think it's something like two thirds of people currently incarcerated for drug offenses are black or Latino. And that stuff has huge ripple effects. Obviously when it comes to your ability to get an education, get a job, um, you know, buy a house, build institutional wealth, right? And so all of these things that we know, um, you know, are problems, we want to solve those problems. And so there's a lot of reasons um, to do this. And based on the polling, I think if you um, ask people in King County right now about it, it sounds like they would support it by 53%. Um, And currently King County doesn't put anybody in jail for drug possession because the King County prosecutor basically, you know, won't do that. We've seen this uh, happen already, as Brian was mentioning earlier, I think off tape, but you know, down in Oregon, they've already done it. Um, so far, they've seen fewer arrests, no major increase in drug use. So a lot of reasons on that side to do it, um, but I think there are questions kind of about the timing, and I'm very curious what backers thought and what kind of conversations they were having about that. 53% sounds maybe like a lot, but... We haven't seen an opposition campaign yet and if there is an opposition campaign you know expect in november grainy images of seattle of people shooting up in the streets openly Mm -hmm. which is something that even people in seattle at this point have said in the in the last election you can you can see it um they're not that happy about it either you get outside seattle the issaquah where kim schreier's running for re-election or out in squim or whatever people are less excited even about those kinds of images. And so there's a real potential, I think, for a sort of outrage campaign about this. And I think if you're Kim Schreier or Patty Murray or one of these vulnerable Democrats this year, when there's clearly a kind of law and order zeitgeist out there, you know, they're probably not that excited about the timing of this initiative this year when when, uh, Democrats are really hoping to try to hang on to Congress. Um, You know, and I would imagine that their Republican opponents are looking at this kind of rubbing their hands and thinking they can see the ads, you know, I'm going to tie Patty Murray to Seattle, I'm going to tie Kim Schreier to Seattle and these these images of, of drug use, even if those images are unfair and don't reflect what would happen if this thing passed. And so, you know, the world is complicated, there are unintended consequences. And sometimes uh, not everybody always thinks about all of them. But, uh, you know, yeah.
1: And just I mean, just to jump on that with regard to what could be on the ballot here, David, I think it's interesting to consider that we also could have a vote on the November ballot to legalize psilocybin, so-called magic mushrooms or whatever else. Oregon did this back in 2020 their system is actually going to launch in 2023. Very interested to see how that pans out. But how interesting would it be if we had two separate drug measures on the ballot there? How would that affect the different candidates involved? Because I think you're right. I don't think there's a Democrat out there that really wants to stump on an issue like that. And you're right, I think a lot of different uh, opponents are gonna be licking their chops trying to tie people to this whole idea of supporting drug use or whatever else. So uh, unfair or not. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that ballot plays out because two, potentially two big measures there that people
2: could be voting on. Yeah. It, it, I wonder why they didn't try for um, an initiative that would say treatment over imprisonment and make mm-hmm. the punishment mandatory treatment.
1: It's it's like I, it I don't know that. That's it's it's looking at the infrastructure of these different bills here, especially with this one with the psilocybin. They're saying it is for medical use only, and how that would play out, I, I'm not quite sure. But the whole idea with the decriminalization, I mean, this is something that happened in the city of Seattle, right? And as David alluded to earlier, police don't make those arrests for possession. It's the lowest uh, law enforcement priority they have. So, um, does that play out on a statewide level? I I'm not sure that that's going to be a tough one to sell
3: this. The psilocybin one, I would say, is less of a problem for Democrats. I mean, just that's my guess. It's kind of like this is a pretty libertarian state as somebody who's originally from Canada and grew up in the East Coast, like a shockingly libertarian state. We don't really care what you do here in Washington state to some extent. So I think we're you know, I, I said earlier, I was judgy. I was joking. I'm not that judgy. And I think people wouldn't be that judgy about people wanting to trip on magic mushrooms for medical reasons or really any other reason in Washington state. So I doubt that one. But when you're talking about meth, uh, you know, heroin, yeah. um, other kinds Depending of drugs on. like that. I think people have questions. And I, I do think also um, you raised the question of treatment. I think even I, I'm, I'm reading people in the treatment community had questions about the one in Oregon and the one here, mm-hmm. like sort of the cart before the horse thing that Joanne was raising, you know, could you have just, sh- should we should we add a whole bunch of money to help people with treatment before, or, you know, phase it in, something like that. I, I kind of wonder, um, you know, would that be more palatable? But we'll see. I think if nobody runs any opposition uh, you know, major opposition campaign against this thing. Um, no problem, probably, you know, and And, uh, I I can go ahead. Sorry.
2: I can hear listeners calling in and saying, yeah, but treatment isn't always effective. And in fact, it's very often not effective, but if you, instead of telling someone you're going to prison for six months, say you're going to a treatment facility for six months, at least it's a start or an attempt or a, a try.
1: You gotta well, have so those. You gotta have those facilities, though, that, that and have those services. Those
2: well, those are prisons, not always basically, place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, our prisons are well. There's certainly our prisons are mental health facilities now. Mm. Uh, we um, so it's maybe a compromise that wouldn't satisfy anyone. You're
0: right. Since we're talking about policing now, um, we're we're just about to wrap up the show here. We've got about four minutes, Brian. the The big Seattle debate used to be whether to hire more police, and now it seems yeah. to be. That that seems to be over. Now the debate in, uh, at the city council is how to hire more police. What's going on?
1: Well, losing a lot of officers. This has been happening to a lot of law enforcement agencies across the country. Definitely happening in Seattle more than 300 over the past uh, two-plus years here. The council is very concerned about it. A number of different proposals are coming out. Councilmember Sarah Nelson is saying, all right, the SPD said they were going to hire 125 officers. That was their plan for this year. That's what they budgeted for. Looks like it's gonna be closer to 80, somewhere around there. So there could be a savings of up to $4 million. Council Member Nelson is saying, let's put that back to the SPD, let them figure out how they wanna do this with retention bonuses, with some different hiring bonuses to try to attract people to the area. A lot of different agencies around our region are doing this. And so they're trying to keep in step with that, a bit of an arms race almost with these bonuses that we're talking about. Councilmember Herbal, it looks like her measure is, is what's going to be in front of the council at the end of the day. She's talking about a more targeted approach here. She's saying, Maybe let's take $650,000 of that amount. That is the surplus here. Let's put about 200000 towards a recruiter that can help bring in these different officers and let that set aside 450000 or so to make sure that they're getting some kind of relocation bonus, some money in that way to bring them in. It's a big, big problem for the SPD. It's a big issue for the Seattle City Council as officers continue to leave. It takes a while for officers to come online, right, to kind of go through that pipeline of training, et cetera, and actually be an officer. So there's a lot of different moving parts here, but it looks like there is some work by the council right now to try to figure out some different ways to do this. Hopefully hire a recruiter to uh, work on this so they can have the officers that they need.
0: What's the big, it sounds, I mean, retention bonus, hiring, you know, incentives. Is this really a a big philosophical split? Are we just talking about fine-grained details and how you hire more cops?
1: It is a philosophical split when you talk about where that surplus money should go, Bill, because a lot of people, and this is certainly over the past couple of years when we went through a lot of the BLM protests or whatever else, they were saying surplus money for the SPD, you know where that should go? That should go into different alternatives, right. not policing, not cops on the streets with weapons, but mm-hmm. some different ways to help people stay away from crime. So that's one piece of this. And there's a lot of people on the city council right now who support those kind of ideas. However, there's a certain level of, of police out there, and Interim Chief Diaz will tell you this. There needs to be a certain level of police out there or we can actually, as a city, meet the charter requirement to actually provide the public safety that's needed. So it's a balance there. Where do you put this extra money? Do you try to put it towards some alternatives? Do you put it towards back into police? Both of those things need to happen. It's just how you measure it. Uh, But that is the philosophical divide there for sure.
0: Right. Thank you. We are about to wrap up a week in review. I always leave time for something. Please, something to smile about. And uh, we've got David Hyde here. David, I know you understand the sentence that I read this week in the Seattle Times. Quote, club captain Nico Ladero bagged a brace from the spot to turn a two-legged CONCACAF Champions League final series against Pumas Unam into a one-off affair because of a 2-2 draw and away goals not counting as a tiebreaker in aggregate scoring. Mm. You know what that, <laughs> that means. means. Well said. Well said
3: you're being unfair to uh to casual soccer fans everywhere who love this game who were there and uh you know i i got to say i mean it was a it was a pretty exciting seattle um sports moment i don't know brian were you there joanne were you there
1: No, I was watching though. And uh, that guy next to me in the bar who bought me that beer, that was very cool, Sandeep. Thank you. Yeah, keep going.
3: (laughs) And well, I was going to say, I I had fun talking to Puma supporters. This is the the Mexican team that the Sounders were playing, who, you know, there were 10,000 of them that flown in from everywhere. And I just think the possibility of this you know, America's rivalry where the U.S. is actually a little bit behind is is a really exciting thing. Fun thing for Seattle to be a part of.
0: Speaking of being a little bit behind. Thank you. Um, We're just going to have to smile about the Sounders because it's it's time for the end of Week in Review. Uh, Joanne and Brian. I'm smiling because you're here. I would smile if you promise right now, if you vow to come back on the show. Can we can we agree on that?
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And happy Mother's Day. Smiling on that.
0: Thank <laughs> you, Brian Callahan of Seattle Channel, the host and producer there, and KUOW Politics reporter David Hyde, and freelance multimedia journalist specializing in health and health policy coverage, Jo Anselburner, thank you all for doing the show.
2: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: It's produced by Kevin Kniestet with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. We got Bernard Ouellette on the board making us sound good. Thank you for listening. I'm Bill Radke. We'll talk to you next week.